0: How are we? Are we all good? Are we all excited to hear a word that God's got for us today? Because there's nothing that ever happens by mistake. Whether you chose today to come to church and you haven't been in a while, or whether you come every single weekend, it's not a mistake. The message that God puts on my heart, which I do the absolute best I can to pray to the Holy Spirit, have him show me what he wants to teach. We have an outline. We say we're teaching through biblical prophecy. So I know that going in. But as far as what scriptures we teach on, how we teach on them, I always do the absolute best I can to stand back and let the Holy Spirit guide that. And then we jump in and we go. And so there's no mistake. If you're here, God's got something for you out of this message. And my prayer is always, Lord, don't let me take this amazing, miraculous word that you have given me and blow it in how I deliver it. But even then, I know that he is going to let you hear what you need to hear in a way that you need to hear it. And on that, being a pastor is the best job in the world because I get to look like a genius if I do nothing more than just step aside and let the Holy Spirit speak. It seems like I know all these things, but all I know for sure is that God's good and God always comes through and God will always meet us where we are and he'll tell us what we need to be to hear in the way that we need to hear it at the time that we need to hear it to have its most impact. And that's, that's an amazing thing to be a part of. So um, glad you guys are here. Listen to the youth just <laughs> whooping it up in the other room. Is that not amazing? This is our future. This is our next generation. And they are so excited about Jesus and what's going on in there. I love that. If you haven't had a chance to go in there and just check out what they do or see the youth room, do that when you get a chance. It is, it is so wonderful. So, all right, let's get going on the, on the message here. Um, we're talking about um, prophecies and promises. Prophecies and promises is the title of the series, and it is all about Old Testament prophecy relating to a coming Messiah. Okay, that in a nutshell is what we're talking about. We're entering into what's called the the Holy Season, and there are so many different holidays or observances that go on during this this Holy Season that sometimes they just kind of get lost in the jumble. And some of them, some of them are seen as kind of like that's a Catholic thing, or that's a Jewish thing, or that's a. But if we understand really the significance of all of them, they are all. A Jesus thing at their at their core. They're all a Jesus thing. So that's what we're talking about. Last weekend, if you missed last weekend, by the way, um, last Wednesday specifically was uh, kind of the kickoff of this holy season with Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is really commonly known as a Catholic thing, although a lot of other Protestant churches are starting to observe that. The way that we observed it is, I put together. A sheet, kind of a devotional sheet. And if you didn't get one of those, they're on the chair as you go out uh, the sanctuary. Grab one. Here's the idea though. Rather than to get together and put ashes on our forehead and and just corporately pray and repent at that moment, the idea is that sheet has 40 scriptures on it. So it's 40 days until Easter. If you don't count Sundays, because they're excluded. If you don't count Sundays, because we're here praying together, right? Each one of those scriptures gives us a way to just pray together, meditate together on the scripture and have God show us how we can prepare our hearts as we get closer to, to Easter, which is the ultimate celebration of our of our Savior. So grab one of those, just pray with us. Each day it's it's cool just knowing that each one each day we're all kind of praying together our way through this. And if you miss that, Pastor Gabe has put on our Facebook page. So each each day it, it gives us the scripture of the day. But follow along with us. I think it's meaningful that we do that. So that was Ash Wednesday. On Wednesday. So anybody know what the next kind of significant holiday is as we move towards Easter? What's the next one? Purim. Very good, Nadine. Purim. Now, Purim, most of you um, who are familiar with it, or those of you who are not, are like, isn't that a Jewish holiday? It is traditionally mostly a Jewish holiday. But next week, not this week, next week, I'm going to teach about Purim, and in fact, we're going to teach through the book of Esther. And so if you're familiar with the book of Esther at all, right, I'm not going to teach the whole book, by the way, that's a lot of teaching in one message, but we're going to talk about it and talk about its significance, but what's one of the most significant trivia item, if you will, about the book of Esther? Anybody know? It's, It's... the book in the Bible, one of the only books in the Bible that doesn't mention God at all. Doesn't talk, certainly doesn't talk about Jesus, and it doesn't mention God at all. Well, how can a book like that be significant when we're talking about Jesus? It's really significant, and we're going to talk today on how we know it's significant. It is all about Jesus. He's never mentioned, but yet it's all about him. And so we're going to talk about that. And today we're going to talk about a couple of scriptures, but I'm also going to kind of explain how we can know that some of these events and scriptures and things that happened in the past really do point towards Jesus because all of the Bible, the entirety of the Bible, every single book in here points to Jesus from the beginning to the end. And we need to understand that. And by understanding how that works, then I think we can see it a little bit more clearly and maybe apply that in our lives. So that's where we are. We're going to talk about the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ from an Old Testament perspective and then link that into us today. It's important that we know Jesus isn't just a character in the New Testament. Right? And in fact, the New Testament, Old Testament, how many have heard, like, well, there was angry God in the Old Testament, and now there's warm and fuzzy, nice God in the New Testament. Anybody ever heard it broken out like that? I hear that all the time. God is the same today and yesterday and the day before. God is and always has been the same God. It's our perception of things that have changed in many ways. And we need to understand how there is no old and new, no before and after. It's all about Jesus, and it's all about a loving God who has always made a way for us to be reconciled to him. Always made a way for us to understand that we're not alone in the world, to just figure it out. That there's always been a way. So I love that. This gospel message just echoes all the way through not only scriptures, but through our lives. We get to see this message born in Old Testament scriptures and then fulfilled later on. And this is what we're going to talk about. So we're going to get into, I'm going to teach you about some churchy words, right? Yes. All of us are. So, I'm going to teach you some churchy words, um, but I hope that you'll see how they kind of apply. So, don't let your eyes glaze over. This isn't like high school class. Uh, Let me know when something gets significant. Let's talk about it. We're going to talk about the words types and shadows, first and foremost. Okay, if we talk about types and shadows, now there are entire seminary classes and beyond that talk about the concept of types and shadows. So I'm just going to kind of do a drive-by, so forgive me if you know more than I do, which many of you probably do, about this subject. Um, I'm just going to give you the kind of high-level view of what this is. But by doing that, I think you'll understand how it's significant. So the idea of a type. A type is a historical person, place, thing, or sometimes even a concept an actual thing that foretells of something in the future, okay? Something that happens in the past that foretells. Now, this isn't prophecy. This is something that is our example that's something that we can see later fulfilled in the future, okay? That's kind of a high-level view of, of what types are. It's a literal object or a literal thing that happens that points to a literal fulfillment sometime in the future, okay? It's important to know. It's a literal thing that points to a literal thing later. Now, there's shadows, a shadow. A shadow is like any shadow, something that casts a shadow. The shadow has aspects of the original thing. It's kind of roughly looks like it, but a lot of the details are obscured, right? So when we're talking about types, it's much more... Here is the detailed description of this type. We know all about that. And now we see the literal fulfillment in this thing. So we can see those comparisons and they're very much similarities and aspects are very, very, very similar. Shadows, sometimes types and shadows are used interchangeably. But shadows are much more vague and sometimes they're conceptual rather than actual physical things that you can point to. Um, Types are not accidental. Types are, when we're talking about biblical types, uh, especially, they're not accidental. They are put there by God to be our roadmap or our uh, breadcrumb, a signpost, something that we can see as we navigate through life ourselves and say, here is a similar situation. Here is a thing thousands of years ago that may have happened that is similar to what we're going through, either me personally or us as a, as a people are going through, and we can see how this kind of foreshadowed what we're going through now. So it's not accidental. These are things that happen by God. So we need to look at this. There are so many examples. If you look at the, the study of this, is called biblical typology. You can go through this, and you can find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ways where things that happened in the Old Testament... Jonah, for example, Jonah being swallowed by the whale, right, and then escaping from that is a type of Jesus escaping from the tomb, overcoming death, leaving the tomb. So we kind of see that as an example of something that happened being fulfilled later on. We see um, even earlier than that the temple veil when the When the Jews were traveling the the world and they had the temple, in fact, the layout for the temple that they had, all of them had a curtain we call it the temple veil, if you've heard that term. The temple veil. it was very well laid out. this is what it was, looked like, and this is what it did. But its function was to keep the place where God dwelt. God dwelt in the temple, and the veil separated God from his people, and only a very few people could actually go beyond. That veil and have that intimate communion with God. And then we see later on that temple veil being torn, literally granting us access to God and to have that kind of intimate communion. We didn't have to go through someone else, we now had access. So we see the temple veil and separating, and that was foreshadowing later where that would be torn, and now we had access to God. So that's kind of that idea of types and shadows, and then there's the anti-type. The anti-type is the fulfillment of the type. So the type is the original thing, kind of our example, the precursor, and then the anti-type is the fulfillment of that thing. So we see anti-type. Some people confuse anti-type and anti-Christ. It's definitely not the same thing okay Jesus is himself the anti-type of many things that came before him we'll talk about that in a little bit but not the antichrist be sure that we get those straight now again this field is called biblical typology but a lot of times people want to debate that they claim that the bible really should be led should be read more as a history book read and understand as this happened then Then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And any correlation or relevance to our lives today is purely just circumstantial. It's like we can look at American history and go, Oh, I saw that this is what happened back then, and maybe that can kind of sort of guide me now. But Jesus himself dispels that notion. None of it is accidental. First scripture we have, in fact, John 5, 39 Jesus himself says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. The scriptures that Jesus is talking about is what we would call the Old Testament. That's all he had at that point. They had the scriptures. There was nothing old and new at that point. And this is what he's talking about, but he's saying they all testify about him. So when we talk about Um, the idea of Jesus being in all of Scripture, this is the idea that we're talking about. All of Scripture testifies and points towards Jesus. So types now, types can be fulfilled either partially or fully. So we see sometimes in the past, this idea is called dual or partial fulfillment, where we see in the past something will be will be spoken about or something will happen, and then we see later a fulfillment of that. But then there can be yet another fulfillment on beyond, beyond the, what we see in the, in the physical realm. It can be later. An example of this we see in Luke. So in Luke 21, um, Jesus is, is foretelling of the temple being destroyed. He's foretelling the temple is going to be destroyed and it's going to be smashed down by by conquerors. And then we see very shortly after, in about about the year 70, where the Roman army comes in and flattens the temple. So we can see that that thing that Jesus said, spoke to his disciples, was very shortly after fulfilled in, in the natural, fulfilled right there. Now the disciples were probably going, okay, he said it. And here it is happening. He got it right. However, there's more to that scripture. If you read it through, <coughs> excuse me, going on in Luke, Luke 21, 25 to 28, I'll just read this part to you. It's a continuation of that thought where he's telling them about the temple being destroyed. It says, There'll be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among the nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves, men fainting from fear, and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So if you took that that teaching that Jesus was doing in Luke 21, if you took that as just a historical thing, Jesus said the temple would be flattened, and there it was. Then you'd say, but where's the rest of this that he said was going to accompany that? Well, the rest of this has clearly not happened yet. We'll see that happen. That will be the dual fulfillment of something that happened then and happened later. Does that make sense? Okay. We're just talking about this idea because we want to know how when you look at a scripture that that was written or an event that happened thousands of years ago, we may have seen bits and pieces of that be fulfilled, but there's still more to come. And we see that, that thread happen all throughout. Biblical prophecies about Jesus as Messiah, in fact, are most often dual in nature. So keep that in mind as we talk about some of these scriptures that we're going to go through. Last week, we saw how Ezekiel and Moses were types of Jesus in the Old Testament. How Moses represented the law how Ezekiel represented the prophets, and then we remember when Jesus came and said he's fulfilling the law and the prophets, right? So Jesus was the fulfillment of that, whereas Ezekiel and Moses were the type of that. So we see that. Now we shift to Ezekiel himself speaking about another kind of a type of Jesus. And this is the direction that we're going for the rest of the message here. Ezekiel 34. If you have your Bibles, by the way, feel free to follow along. I use the New American Standard. It's just the one I teach from. If you have another version, it might read slightly differently, but don't let that throw you off. If you want to follow along, you can. Ezekiel 34, 24 says, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. All right, cool scripture, obviously talking about David. Now, how do we know that this is David as a type of Jesus, of one to come, of a king to come? How do we know that? We know that if we look at the timing of it. When did did David live on the earth, and when did he write his psalms, and when was all that? Anybody have an idea? Roughly, give or take, 1,000 B.C. Okay, about 1,000 B.C. Ezekiel was hundreds of years later. So David had already lived and breathed and fought and died and done all his exploits and, and was already... Returned to dust at this point. And yet Ezekiel is saying, I'll set over them my servant David. Is he talking about David's going to be resurrected to come and, and rule the world? That's what many of the Jewish people thought. That's what they thought. But we know that this is a type of Jesus because Jesus is the one that came to fulfill this, that he was talking about. So this week then, does that make sense to you? Hopefully that makes sense. This week now, we're going to look at another type or another example of Jesus. We're going to look deeper at David as a type of Jesus or a precursor. Now, for that, we're going to go into the New Testament for some of this. Very first verse of the very first book of New Testament, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of of Abraham. This is Matthew writing his gospel. Okay, the very first one. And the first thing he does is say, I need to establish the link, the definite link between Abraham and Jesus and David. I need to establish that. So he does this Matthew 1-1, all the way from 1-1 to 117, he's establishing this this lineage. You can read that whole thing uh, if you want the complete genealogy on on the lines. But he finishes up, Matthew one seventeen says, in all then, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. So he's laying this out and he's establishing that Christ is absolutely from the lineage of David. And it's important that this is established. We need to know this. Now let's look at David. Why does it matter That Jesus comes from the lineage of David. Why is that even important? And think about this. When David was was writing, you know, David wrote many of the Psalms. Did he know? Did even David have any understanding of the significance of what he was going through and the things that he was writing? Could he possibly even have had any foundation for understanding how significant these things were going to be? Did David himself go, well, I'm a, I'm a type, I'm a foreshadow of our Messiah? I'm sure that thought never crossed his mind. What crossed his mind mostly is, I'm in trouble and I need help. That's probably most of what occupied David's time. I'm in trouble and I need help. So let's look at, most of us are familiar, at least on the basis, kind of uh, basic, with the life and times of David. And you could teach, all year on the exploits of David. In fact, we might sometime. That sounds, sounds fun to me. Hopefully, it sounds fun to you. We might do that. Um, but here, I'm just going to hit kind of the bullet point overview of the life and times of David, if you will. So, David was the youngest son of Jesse, okay? The great-grandson of Boaz and Ruth, Anybody, Boaz and Ruth ringing a bell with anybody? Yes, it's the Ruth that the book of Ruth was written about. Born in Bethlehem, which was a tiny, insignificant town in the tribe of Judah. David was a shepherd and a musician. In fact, he was, if he was known for anything, it was really for being a poet and a musician. He was really, really, really a good musician and known for that. Turn of events happen, and he finds himself, as the story goes, confronted with the giant Goliath, okay? He takes a stone and slays the giant, immediately becoming celebrity, right? And then he joins the entourage of King Saul, joins that. King Saul, though, is really, really jealous of David because David's the man. People are looking at him going like, you... You killed that guy. That was was the coolest thing ever. And he's getting this this celebrity, this popularity, and Saul, the king, is really, really jealous of that. So the king decides, well, here's what I do with things that annoy me. I kill them. They don't stick around for very long. So he hatches numerous plots and ways and things that he's going to do to kill David. Well, Saul's own son, Jonathan who's a good friend of David's, warns David, and David flees. My dad's going to kill you. Here's the plot. You need to go now. So David and some of his men, some of his loyal men, they flee into the into the wilderness, and they are basically on the run. They are like this Tribe of Robin Hoods, kind of running around, just trying to stay under the radar and stay out of trouble. They finally come to this area outside of this town. This town, this town called Ziff, depending on how you how you pronounce it. And he's hiding and his group are hiding in the mountains outside of this. And they think they've come to a place where they're relatively safe. They can kind of hang out there for a little while. Well, the only problem is the locals, which the word calls Ziffites find out that they're up there. And they find out that they're up there, and they go, well, what can these guys offer us? Can they offer us protection? Mm, They're kind of small and ragtag group of various guys. I don't know if they can really offer us protection. Can they pay us? No, not really. Can they offer us prestige? eh." But we know who can. King Saul can. And we know what King Saul wants. He wants to know where David's hiding. So they run, some of the Ziphites, they run, they tell King Saul that David is hiding out and point exactly to where he's hiding out. So King Saul gathers his armies together and goes out and literally surrounds the mountain that David and his men are hiding on. Okay, surrounds it. David looks out and he sees that they are surrounded. 360 degrees, there is literally no escape. He and his small little ragtag group of men, this isn't going to be some great kind of shootout at the O.K. Corral. They are, they're done for because the armies of the king have literally surrounded this mountain. And he is at this place where his eyes are telling him, we're done for. And his advisors are telling him, we're done for. His scouts are coming back saying, there is literally no way through these lines. We are done. And David is crying out in anguish and in fear to the Lord. Crying out in desperation at this point and is at this point where Psalm 22 that we're going to talk about in just a minute here is written. This is where tradition says it's written. David cries out, and God intervenes. How does God intervene in this? Here's what happens there is a group of people at this time called the Philistines, and the Philistines pretty much just attacked anybody and everybody that they could. And while Saul's armies were away from home, the Philistines thought this was a fantastic time to attack Saul's home. It was unguarded, there's nobody left there. Saul's chasing David with his entire army. We're going to go attack. So a messenger comes and tells Saul, the Philistines are massing to attack your home, and if you don't get there fast, there ain't going to be no home to go back to. So Saul decides, okay, David can wait. I'll get him another day. we got to go home and protect our home. So in the middle of the night, Saul's armies pack up, and they leave, and they go back home to defend against the Philistines. God used A common enemy to deliver David from this time where David was crying out. So this happens Um, later on, then we fast forward past this event. The Israelites are defeated, and the death of Saul, uh, with the defeat of the Israelites and the death of Saul at the hands of the Philistines, so the Philistines actually do that, David is anointed king over Judah. Okay? He doesn't have the, the royal lineage. He's not the son, the heir who's entitled. He's basically elected by popular vote. They just say, you are going to be our king. We want you as our king. He ends up defeating the Philistines so soundly that they're literally never again any threat to anybody. He unites the tribes of Israel okay? He moves the capital then to Jerusalem, brings the Ark of the Covenant there, okay? And and on and on. There's so much more to that story that he does. But here's why this is important. Psalm 22 has kind of gotten this nickname. Some people call it the fifth gospel, okay? The fifth gospel because there is such an amazing gospel message. Now, remember, this was written I'm going to read it to you here in just a second. It's written while David is surrounded by his enemies. And this is Jesus, this is David's mindset as he writes this. Jesus himself actually quotes from Psalm 22 about 15 times. This was important to him and it is a gospel message all the way through. So listen to this. So like verses the first 18 verses are essentially a lamentation to use another churchy word. It's it's David saying, "Uh, this is where I am. I've gone through all these things, and this is who I am. I'm nothing. I I am lost. First 18 verses, he is lost. Then there's a shift in, you can see it, where he shifts to prayer and praise, and he becomes found at that point. So he is lost. Then he becomes found. And then the end of it, verses 20 to 31, he is delivered. That is the gospel message church we are lost but we have been found and we are delivered. That deserves an amen. Yeah, oh don't not now. I need it real time or it doesn't count. I'll edit an amen in, in later. Listen now. I'm going to read I'm going to read Psalm 22 in its entirety. Now kind of a subtitle for Psalm 22 is a cry of anguish and a song of praise. And listen to this with a mind of where David is and what he's going through as he writes this. So verses 1 through 5, I'm going to kind of break it up for you, and I'll just read it. Again, follow along in your version or on your phone if you want to, or just listen and kind of soak it in. So verses 1 through 5, again, Israel is crying out. David is saying, Israel cried out to God and they were delivered. So he's laying a groundwork, saying, I've seen this happen before. Starts out with verse one My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Where else have we heard that? Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, forsaken me? Matthew 27 46 specifically. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, I like when they translate for us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in all caps in my version because that refers back to this very scripture where, where David says those words first. Verse two: 2, oh O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were delivered. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. He's saying, you have always been good to those who cry out to you. Verses 6 through 10, he's saying, but who am I? Who am I that you would care about me at all? Verses 6 through 10, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with a lip. Just a common term for, for derision at the time. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust went upon my mother's breasts. Upon you, I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb, saying, I am nothing, and yet you still care about me. Verses 11 through 18, I am weak, I am beaten, and I am down. Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Bashan is a, was a region in that area just known for like really strong farm boys and strong animals, and, and it was a really fertile place where people just grew up strong. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening lion and a roaring lion, as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Ever been so thirsty? Your tongue literally sticks inside your mouth. That's where he is. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Where else have we heard this idea? All the Gospels, right? All four Gospels talk about it. Now think about this. Was anybody literally piercing David's hands and feet at that time? No. Was anybody literally dividing up his clothing? Was that happening? And yet the Holy Spirit guided David to write these words. He had no way of knowing this was going to be fulfilled later, but God did. And God gave us this, saying, when you need help the most, when you cry out to me, I will be there. This is written for us. David had no idea even the significance of those. Can you imagine writing this down going, I don't know if I should throw that out because that's not happening right now. That wasn't for him. That was for us. Let's go on. Verses 19 through 21, he's saying, all these things are happening, but I know God is good and God will be there for me. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. Verses 22 to 25 now switch, and he's praising God. He's saying, I will praise you. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried out to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Then, better than that, he goes on now to say this. Verses 26 through 31 to the end. He says, not only will I praise you because you're not doing it right now. When he wrote this, God hadn't delivered him yet, but he knew it was going to come. And he said, not only then am I going to praise you, but the whole earth is going to praise you. 26 through 31 says this, the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All of the families of the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nation's. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even the dead will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Prosperity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. So in the in the absolute depths of despair and worry, surrounded by his enemies with no way out, David stops and he praises God because he knows God has always been good. God will always be good. And church, we praise God today for the same reasons that David did then. The exact same reason. Our situation may not look exactly the same, But spiritually, we are in those same places. Now, there are dozens of scriptures that fulfill each one of these, so I encourage you to go study them out on your own. But I'm going to go through this. So we were lost, like David started out. We were lost. Just an example of a scripture, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Secondly, we have been found, Philippians 3, 8, 9. I'll just read that one to you. More than that, I count all the things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We have been found. Then we have been delivered. 1 John 5, 4, and 5, up on the screen here. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Next step in what we see David going through here our future is secured. He didn't know it at the time, but he expected it. 2 Corinthians four seventeen eighteen. 18. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look at not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our eternity is secure. And at the end of it all, just like David... We will praise him. Philippians 4, 9 through 11. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start heading up. As we conclude this message, it's important to me that we understand this stuff. David writes Psalm 22, and it's poetic, and it's it's interesting to read and think about what he was going through, but think about his mindset. I am nothing. I am in a position I never should have been in to begin with. And here I am with these people looking to me to lead them through this thing, but I have nothing. I was born nothing. I'm still nothing. And without God, I will surely die. We cry out in anguish. We cry out in desperation, knowing that God has always answered. And God will always be our deliverer. And we know that when it's all all said and done, we can praise him. And we can praise him as we're going through it because we have an expectation that he's done it before, and he'll do it again. So do we wait until the storm's over, until we see blue sky to praise God for what he has done, or do we praise him as we're going through the storm because we know he has always taken us through the storm? He has always. So we're going to introduce communion right now. and We're going to do it a little bit differently here. So communion, if you're new here, we do it a little differently than some churches. At the crosses there, we've got um, juice grape juice and bread and gluten-free crackers and you can dip the bread in the juice or the cracker and serve yourself that way up front here we have wine and bread and crackers and we serve you up here if you'd like to be served and you're all if you call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior you are welcome to enjoy communion with us but rather than to just say now's the time when we do it and get up and do it and sit back down I want to focus our focus our meditation a little bit on this, our direction. And I want to remind you how a few weeks ago, I think it was, I talked about the song Amazing Grace and about this guy, this slave trader named John Newton, who actually was the one who wrote Amazing Grace. Now, a little background on him, a slave trader, as I said, his job, he, he uh, took ships across the ocean full of slaves and... That was his life. Didn't know the Lord. But at one point in one of these trips, we don't know exactly when or where he was headed, but during one of these trips, there was a storm so severe that he knew for sure he was dead. His ship was starting to break up. It was creaking. It was groaning. The waves were lashing over the top of the ship. And he knew this is it. Unless someone or something intervenes, this is it. They didn't have GPS or radios. There was no help he could call, but there was someone he could call upon. And he did it at that very moment. In desperation, he cried out to the Lord that the Lord would deliver him. And that is the moment where he became a follower of Christ. That's when that happened. He survived that trip, got back to land, and very shortly thereafter, Uh, completely dedicated his life to the Lord, became a pastor, and wrote this song as we know it as a sermon illustration. He didn't write it to be a song. In fact, there was no music with it for the longest time. It was a sermon illustration. But it's a sermon illustration that walks us through the steps of anguish, of unworthiness, of receiving a gift and then of deliverance and praise, the same steps that David went through. We walk through with this song. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put the words up on screen, um, just four lines at a time. We're gonna say the words together as was originally intended. And then we can meditate about that as we move about and take communion together. Does that sound good? Follow me along with this. Again, I've got it on the screen. There's one stanza in there that is commonly left out, but I love in its entirety. That's what we're going to do. All right. So, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be, as long as life endures. Yea, with this flesh and heart shall fail. And mortal life shall cease. I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. When we've been here 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Amen. Thank you, church, and feel free to move around and participate in communion as the Lord leads.
1: Fails me for all my days I've been held in your hands from the moment that I wake up until I lay my head oh I will sing of the goodness of God alright sing this out all my life All my life you have been faith All my life you have been so, so good With every breath that I am able Oh, I will sing By the goodness of God I love your voice I love your voice You have led me through the fire In darkest night You were close like no other I've known you as a father God, I've known you as a friend Oh, I have known you In the goodness of God Oh, my You have been faithful All my life You have been so So good as you have With every breath That I am able Oh, I will sing Of the goodness Of God Oh, sing it out Your goodness is running after it's running after me your goodness is running after it's running after me oh with my life laid down i'm surrendering now i give you everything your goodness is running after it's running sing it again your goodness oh your goodness is running after, it's running out to me. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Oh, with my life laid down, I'm surrendered now. I give you everything, yes I do. Your goodness is running, after, it keeps running out to You have been faithful. Sing it out. In all my life, you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. Sing it out all my life. Yay! Yeah. time, all my life, all my life you have been faithful, yes you have, all my life you have been so, so good, with every breath that I have made, oh I will sing of the goodness